Hello, I'm your reader, Paula Carezzi, and it's time for our birthdays. Mildred Gass of Ankeny, happy birthday to you. Ronald Wilson of Adair, we wish you the happiest of birthdays. And Leonard George of Centerville, many, many happy returns of the day to, for you. If today is also your birthday and you didn't hear your name, give us a call so we can be sure to get your birthday on our list. Here's a reminder that our program schedule has changed dramatically so that we can get as much local information to as many listeners as possible. The Fort Dodge Messenger will be read at 7 a.m. Monday through Friday. The Mason City Globe Gazette will be read at 8 a.m. Monday through Friday. Your Des Moines Register will continue to be read from 9 a.m. to noon. The Cedar Rapids Gazette will be read at noon, seven days a week. The Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier will be read at 1 p.m., seven days a week. The Dubuque Telegraph Herald will be read at 2 p.m., Monday through Friday. The Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil will be read at 3 p.m., Monday through Friday. The Sioux City Journal will be read at 4 p.m., seven days a week. The Ames Tribune will be read at 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. And the Midweek Shopping Cart will be read each Wednesday at 9 p.m. We will stay with this schedule until further notice. Let's get back to the news with highlights and our first story from USA Today. In today's coronavirus updates, states across the country made many steps forward this weekend in relaxing social distancing restrictions, particularly ones that were keeping people from exercising outdoors. Access to beaches, parks, golf courses, boat ramps, and more is on the rise across the country, even as leaders warn that restrictions could come back if coronavirus cases spike. These hints of normalcy come alongside grim reminders of the seriousness of the health crisis. The iconic Kentucky Derby has been rescheduled for the first time since World War II. Possible therapies for the virus are still experimental, and the death toll continues to climb. According to Johns Hopkins University, the World Health Organization, the CDC, and USA Today, the total number of confirmed cases in the U.S. is now 1,133,069. There have been a total of 66,385 deaths in the United States due to the coronavirus, and the total recovered number now at 175,382. Officials warn against beach crowding amid scattered protests. California authorities pleaded for beachgoers to follow social distancing rules over the weekend after Governor Gavin Newsom on Thursday temporarily shuttered Orange County's coastline, a move he said was prompted by overcrowded beaches last weekend. At least in some places, officials were pleased with results. In San Diego, where people can exercise on the beach but not linger, Mayor Kevin L. Falconer praised residents for heating safety restrictions that public health officials have credited at slowing the spread of the coronavirus. But even as Newsom and others seek a cautious, phased reopening of the state, protesters don't want to wait. In Huntington Beach, police estimated 2,500 to 3,000 people gathered for May Day on a beachside street. They waved American flags and held signs. Most of them wore no masks and didn't practice social distancing. In Sacramento, as police lined up outside the Capitol, Protesters waved signs that said, Defend Freedom, and broke into USA chants. A similar situation played out in various states on the East Coast on Saturday. State and county parks were allowed to reopen in New Jersey, and park-goer Lisa Hoffman was among those enjoying the reprieve. Quote, I felt like I was let out of prison today, Hoffman said. If they have to do this slowly, I'm okay with that, but we need to move forward. End quote. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy said he was pleased with initial reports of social distancing from a beachfront park, state parks, and some golf courses that also reopened. And in news of an experimental treatment, more than 30 gravely ill patients have now recovered. 
More than 30 gravely ill patients who took part in an experimental treatment for COVID-19 at Houston Methodist Research Institute have recovered from the illness and have left the hospital, the physician overseeing the therapy said Friday. Quote, all of these people were very, very sick, Dr. James A. Musner, chairman of the Department of Pathology and Genomic Medicine at Houston Methodist Hospital, said in a phone interview. Quote, many of them were on ventilators. That was the common theme, end quote. It cannot be said with certainty the treatment in which plasma donated by people who had fully recovered from the illness caused by the coronavirus is injected into those still sick was responsible for the recovery, Musser said, but it appears to be a hopeful sign, he added. Experts are still seeking to determine the types of patients who appear to have benefited from the therapy and the types who did not. And in state reopenings, Ohio takes small steps, and Colorado okays hair salons. Ohio's loosening of stay-at-home orders Friday represents Governor Mike DeWine's cautious approach, starting with an easing of rules for hospitals, dentists, and veterinarians, followed Monday with the opening of construction and manufacturing. Retail and customer service shops will remain shuttered until May 12th. Meanwhile, to usher in the 1st of May, more than a dozen states, like Louisiana and Colorado, have allowed restaurants, stores, or some other businesses to reopen, but under tight restrictions to keep people apart. In world news, Hyung Jin Kim of the Associated Press reports in USA Today that North Korea fired shots at the demilitarized zone, South Korea says. North and South Korean troops exchanged fire along their tense border on Sunday, the South's military said, blaming North Korean soldiers for targeting a guard post. The Joint Chiefs of Staff in Seoul said in a statement that North Korean troops fired several bullets at a South Korean guard post inside the heavily fortified border. South Korea fired two rounds in response after issuing a warning broadcast, it said. South Korea suffered no casualties, the military said. It's unknown whether North Korea had any casualties. The North's official Korean Central News Agency hasn't reported about the incident. It comes a day after North Korea broadcast images of leader Kim Jong-un reappearing in public after a 20-day absence amid intense speculation about his health. KCNA said Kim attended Friday's ceremony marking the completion of a fertilizer factory near Pyongyang along with senior officials. State TV showed Kim smiling and walking around factory facilities. Kim earlier vanished from the public eye after presiding over a Politburo meeting of the ruling Workers' Party on April 11th to discuss the coronavirus. Speculation about his health began swirling after he missed an April 15th event commemorating the birthday of his grandfather and state founder Kim Il-sung, something he had never done since inheriting power upon his father Kim Jong-il's death in late 2011. The Koreas are split along the 248-kilometer, or 155-mile-long, 4-kilometer, or 2.5-mile-wide border called the demilitarized zone that was originally created as a buffer. But unlike its name, the DMZ is the world's most heavily fortified border. An estimated two million mines are peppered inside and near the DMZ, which is also guarded by barbed wire fences, tank traps, and combat troops on both sides. In late 2018, the two Koreas began destroying some of their frontline guard posts and removing mines from the DMZ as part of steps to reduce tensions but the efforts stalled amid a deadlock in nuclear negotiations between Kim and President Donald Trump meant to convince North Korea to give up its arsenal in exchange for lifting economic sanctions. The last time there was gunfire along the border was in 2017, when North Korea sprayed bullets at a soldier fleeing to South Korea. And power outages and damage have been reported after a 5.4 earthquake hit southern Puerto Rico, reports Danica Cotto of the Associated Press in USA Today. A 5.4 magnitude earthquake hit near southern Puerto Rico on Saturday, briefly knocking out power and jolting many from their beds on an island 
where some people still remain in shelters from previous quakes earlier this year. There were no immediate reports of casualties. The U.S. Geological Survey said the quake hit at a shallow depth of 5.6 miles near the city of Ponce and the towns of Guanica and Guayania, where hundreds of homes were destroyed by a quake in early January that killed one person and caused millions of dollars in damage. Reports of damage were still trickling in on Saturday, with at least one second-story balcony crashing in the southern city of Ponce, spokeswoman Inez Rivera told the Associated Press. Meanwhile, cracks in homes were reported in Guyania. Quote, everything shook really hard, spokesman Danny Hernandez said by phone. Meanwhile, in Guanica, Mayor Santos Seda told the AP that no major damage has been reported so far, but noted that between 5 to 10 people remain in a shelter since the 6.4 magnitude quake that hit in January. Quote, thank God everyone is okay, he said. The infrastructure is already weak, end quote. Several aftershocks hit Puerto Rico's southern region, including a 4.9 magnitude one. Victor Huerfanal, director of Puerto Rico's seismic network, said in a phone interview that while it's understandable many people are afraid and surprised by the most recent earthquake, it's not unusual given the seismic activity that began in the region in late December. Quote, in the long run, it's decreasing, but you can still have peaks, he added, adding that he expects strong aftershocks to continue. The earthquake struck as Puerto Ricans are ordered to remain home as part of a two-month lockdown to help curb coronavirus cases. Governor Wanda Vasquez tweeted that rescue crews were fanning out across the area and that she would shortly be traveling there to meet with those affected in person. Quote, if your infrastructure is damaged, you must leave with your face mask on and your emergency backpack, she said, as she urged people to remain calm. But nerves are already frayed in many parts of the island as Puerto Rico continues to recover from Hurricane Maria, a, strong string, a string of strong earthquakes, and the coronavirus. Silvestre Alicia, a 67-year-old man who moved back to Puerto Rico from New York upon retiring, lost his home in January's earthquake and is still living with his sister in Guanica. Quote, this is unreal, he said, adding that some neighbors have left the area to stay with relatives elsewhere and that many, including a security guard who worked all night, are now sitting nervously in their balconies. Quote, he hasn't slept, end quote. Alicia, however, said he decided to knock down a couple of breadfruits from a nearby tree as the aftershocks continue. Quote, I'm taking it easy. There's nothing else you can do, end quote. And returning to the U.S., Joel Shannon of USA Today reports, What are murder hornets, and should I be worried? Asian giant hornets spotted in the U.S. An invasive hornet species slaughters honeybees, can be deadly to humans, and unfortunately has been spotted in the U.S. A small number of Asian giant hornet sightings in the Pacific Northwest has raised alarm after a nickname for the predators started trending on Twitter Saturday, the so-called murder hornet. While experts have been tracking the invasive species in the U.S. for months, a New York Times feature published Saturday brought nickname to the national consciousness. It's a fittingly upsetting nickname based on a lengthy March presentation from Washington State Department of Agriculture entomologist Chris Looney. It opened with a slide listing other ominous titles for the largest hornet in the world, such as Yak Killer Hornet and Giant Sparrow Bee among them. This spring, the Washington State Department of Agriculture started hunting for Asian giant hornets after two confirmed sightings of the predator. And while officials are concerned, especially for local honeybee populations, the danger to the average person is low at this time. Looney confirmed to USA Today Saturday. The hornets are, quote, probably not going to murder someone. Don't panic, Looney said. Sightings have been limited to the Pacific Northwest, although the smaller European hornet is sometimes mistaken for the Asian giant hornet on the East Coast. For humans unfortunate enough to come in contact with an Asian giant hornet, Looney had simple advice in his March presentation, quote, just run away, end quote. The predators kill between 40 and 50 people annually in Japan, Many victims suffer from allergies, but some have died from the potency of the venom alone, he said. 
Rare complications can include localized necrosis, respiratory failure, kidney failure, limit liver damage, and blood clots. But the more immediate danger in the United States is to an already vulnerable honeybee population. Looney described a life cycle where Asian giant hornets attack individual honeybees in the early summer, turning prey into a so-called meatball to feed to hornet larvae. Soon, the hornets abandon this so-called hunting phase in favor of the so-called slaughter phase, the wholesale killing of bee colonies so the hornets can plunder their hives. Efforts to contain the spread of the hornets, which prey on virtually any insect in addition to honeybees, have been ramping up in recent weeks, Looney said Saturday. One thing local residents can do to help, report suspected sightings to the Washington State Department of Agriculture. In political news, Rebecca Morin of USA Today introduces us to the team who will help Biden pick his running mate. Joe Biden has named the team of people to advise him in his search for a vice presidential running mate. Biden's vice presidential selection committee announced Thursday morning will include four co-chairs, former U.S. Senator Christopher Dodd, U.S. Representative Lisa Blunt Rochester, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti, and Cynthia Hogan, former White House and Senate counsel to Biden. Quote, these four co-chairs reflect the strength and diversity of our party and will provide tremendous insight and expertise to what will be a rigorous selection and vetting process, campaign manager Jen O'Malley-Dillon said in a news release announcing the committee. The co-chairs, quote, will conduct conversations across the party as well as work with a network of vetting teams led by former White House counsel Bob Bauer, campaign general counsel Dana Remus, and former Homeland Security Advisor Lisa Monaco, according to a news release. Biden has reiterated on multiple occasions that his Democratic running mate will be a woman, and myriad names have circulated as possible options, including former rivals Senators Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, and Elizabeth Warren. At a fundraiser Wednesday, Biden said he hopes to have a vice presidential candidate vetted by July, according to a pool report from the event. Himself a former vice president, Biden reportedly views the selection process that put him on the Democratic ticket as the model for his own search, according to the New York Times. Then-nominee Barack Obama's vice presidential committee in 2008 included Eric Holder, who was later appointed attorney general by Obama, Caroline Kennedy, the daughter of President John F. Kennedy, who was later named by Obama as ambassador to Japan, and Jim Johnson, who worked for Walter Mondale's presidential campaign in 1984 and assisted in John Kerry's search for a running mate in 2004, but eventually stepped down from Obama's committee. Here's more about the four people who will be leading Biden's search committee. Chris Dodd. Dodd, a former senator from Connecticut, has been a friend and colleague to Biden for almost 40 years. The two served in the Senate together for nearly 30 years, and he endorsed Biden for president in October 2019. Dodd, who helped co-author the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, also played a role in helping pass the Affordable Care Act, a signature piece of legislation for the Obama administration. The senator joined Biden as a Democratic presidential candidate in the 2008 election cycle, exiting the race on the night of the Iowa caucuses. He is currently senior counsel at the law firm of Arnold and Porter, according to the campaign's announcement. Lisa Blunt Rochester. Blunt Rochester, a Democratic representative from Biden's home state of Delaware, became the first African-American and the first female member of Congress to be elected from the state in 2016. Blunt Rochester is an assistant whip for House Democrats and was named a national co-chair of Biden's campaign in March. She will likely be an important voice as co-chair of the committee, as many Democrats have called for Biden to choose a black woman as his running mate. She was born in Philadelphia, but grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, just as Biden did. Eric Garcetti. Garcetti endorsed Biden in January and has since served as a national co-chair for the campaign. He was a member of the L.A. City Council before being elected mayor of Los Angeles in 2013. He is on the board of the National Association of Latino Elected Officials, a Rhodes Scholar, and served as an intelligence officer in the Naval Reserve. He also is the co-founder of Climate Mayors, which includes 438 mayors committed to the principles of the Paris Agreement, according to the campaign news release. 
Climate change is a key issue for many Democratic voters, especially young progressive voters whom Biden is trying to woo. And Cynthia Hogan. Hogan is a longtime aide to Biden, serving as the deputy assistant to the president and counsel to the vice president from 2009 to 2013. She led the administration's efforts to get Justice Sonia Sotomayor Mayor to the U.S. Supreme Court, according to the news release, and has held senior policy roles at Apple and the NFL. She has also served as the staff director and chief counsel of the Senate Judiciary Committee. In that role, she helped with the passage of the Violence Against Women Act, which was co-sponsored by then-Senator Biden in 1994. And returning to pandemic-related news, Indea Yancey Bragg of USA Today reports coronavirus will define the next generation, what experts are predicting about the so-called Generation C. While experts aren't yet sold on the Generation C label some people are using to define babies born amid the coronavirus, they believe the pandemic may define the next generation. The global health crisis could go down in history like a war of sorts, a major factor called a period event that demographers use to help define generations according to Pew Research Center. For Gen Z, usually defined as those born between 1997 and 2012, the quote coronavirus is the generation defining moment, according to Jason Dorsey, president of the Center for Generational Kinetics, a research and stat strategy firm focused on Gen Z and millennials. Quote, we're not sure that this will be the only event that separates Gen Z from the generation that comes after them, Dorsey said, but it is such a profound and important event that we definitely think it's by far the top event that we've ever studied related to Gen Z, end quote. The generation that follows Gen Z will be the first that won't remember the coronavirus because they were too young or not yet born during the crisis, Dorsey said. Online, many have suggested names for babies born during the coronavirus crisis. Coronials, quarantines, and baby zoomers. Dorsey said he first started hearing the label Generation C in the last month from clients wanting to know if that was the official name being given to the next generation. He said some were speculating that coronavirus could cause a baby boom, although experts say that's unlikely. But Michael Wood, president of generational research firm 747 Insights, said he first started hearing the term around four or five years ago. Wood said people were looking for a way to describe how the generation to come after Gen Z would be more connected and have more access to content than ever, but the name, quote, never really took off, end quote. When researchers looked to define the boundaries between millennials and Gen Z, one of the factors they considered was the September 11th terrorist attack, according to Ruth Igelnik, a senior researcher at Pew Research Center. Millennials were old enough to understand a world before and after 9-11, while Gen Z were not. Igelnik, who studies social and demographic trends, noted that researchers just agreed on the label for Gen Z about two years ago, and given that the members of the next generation is just five or six years old, it's too early to speculate what might define them. Wood said it often takes years for researchers to be able to observe shifts in attitudes and values and then retrospectively determine what historical events might have caused them. Researchers are still trying to figure out how coronavirus will impact Gen Z, Igelnik said, and it's hard to predict any long-term economic impacts. The unemployment rate, which rose from a half-century low of 3.5% in February to 4.4% in March, is expected to climb to 15-20% to in April, Moody's Analytics predicts, the highest since the Great Depression. Quote, we've never had this kind of pandemic in recent years, so it's just hard to say, Igelnik said. Quote, the economic circumstance could certainly play a role in that. End quote. Wood of 747 Insights said that in addition to potential economic effects, this could affect young people's so-called core attitudes and values in a way that it likely won't for older generations. Quote, it's going to change how young people think about the future and think about the role of the federal government and think about educational opportunities, said Wood. Dorsey of the Center for Generational Kinetics said that the pandemic will likely also lead to structural changes and new norms that the next generation could ultimately benefit from, 
including shifts in online learning, physical workspaces, contactless payment, a vaccine, and other new technology. Quote, they may not attach it directly to the pandemic, but they'll still be able to benefit from it, he said. The silent generation, the grandparents of millennials who are in their 70s and 80s, were born and came of age during the Great Depression, just as the next generation will be born and raised in the shadow of the coronavirus pandemic. Wood said that depending on what kind of sacrifices the next generation has to make, it's possible they, quote, could very easily mirror what we've seen with previous generations like the silent generation, end quote. Eaglenick, the Pew researcher, said it would be interesting to compare the two groups, but because so much has changed in terms of technology, education, labor participation, and the country's racial and ethnic makeup, it's, quote, not really a fair comparison. Certainly, we know that the Depression was a defining event for sort of the oldest generation in our country today, she said. Quote, that could certainly be something you look at as a parallel, end quote. In money news, Sharice Jones of USA Today reports that Warren Buffett tells investors to bet on America buying stocks for the long term. In a conversation that mixed history with humor, billionaire financial guru Warren Buffett told investors that while the U.S. is dealing with an economic shutdown that is in some ways unprecedented, the country will prevail. The annual Berkshire Hathaway stockholders meeting, known as Woodstock for capitalists, is typically a mecca for investors, with thousands of people traveling to Omaha, Nebraska for a festive weekend centered around Buffett's ruminations on the economy, stock picks, and other topics. But like so many events, the annual pilgrimage was disrupted by the coronavirus pandemic. Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway's chairman and CEO, dispensed his advice solely via live stream Saturday on Yahoo Finance alongside the company's vice chairman, Greg Abel. Though Buffett was unable to mingle with attendees, the so-called Oracle of Omaha continued his tradition of presiding over an hours-long presentation and answering questions submitted by investors. Berkshire has not been unscathed by the current economic crisis. The conglomerate reported a loss of $49.7 billion in the first quarter. Its operating earnings, however, ticked up to $5.8 billion as compared to $5.5 billion during the same period last year. Quote, our operating earnings will be less, considerably less, than if the virus hadn't come along, he said. It hurts some of our businesses a lot. Some of our businesses effectively have been shut down, end quote. Berkshire's businesses span the U.S. economy from ice cream seller Dairy Queen to auto insurer Geico to battery maker Duracell. And at a time when industries ranging from transportation to retail are struggling to stay afloat, Buffett's perspective on the marketplace has been of particularly keen interest. Here are some of the key takeaways from Saturday's meeting. It may take years to fully understand all of the ramifications of the near shuttering of the U.S. economy, actions that have led 30 million Americans to file jobless claims over a six-week period, and the nation's gross domestic product to contract 4.8% between January and March. Quote, we do not know exactly what happens when you voluntarily shut down a substantial portion of your society, said Buffett, adding that in 2008, quote, our economic train went off the tracks. This time, we just pulled the train off the tracks and put it on its siding, end quote. But he is generally optimistic. Quote, we may not know the answers to some very important questions for many years, he says, but never bet against America. And that, in my view, is as true today as it was in 1789, and even was true during the Civil War and the depths of the Depression, end quote. The stock market has gyrated in recent weeks as oil prices have plunged and the airline industry and other major forces in the economy have seen business grind to a halt. But Buffett says if you hold tight and own a range of stocks, preferably in the S&P 500, you'll do fine. Quote, if you owned the businesses that you liked prior to the virus arriving, nobody's forcing you to sell, he said. Stocks have an enormous advantage. And if you bet on America and sustain that position for decades, you're going to do better than in my view far better than owing Treasury securities, end quote. But borrowing to invest is not a good bet. Quote, you never want to use borrowed money to buy into investments, and we run Berkshire that way, he said. 
but there's no reason to use borrowed money to participate in the American tailwind, but there's every other reason to participate, end quote. After previously buying roughly 10% of the four largest airlines, those shares were part of the $6 billion in securities Berkshire sold in April. Quote, the companies we bought were well-managed, he said, but given the dramatic slowdown in travel as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, those airlines are now planning to borrow $10 billion to $12 billion each. Quote, that takes away from the upside, he said, and I don't know whether two or three years from now, that as many people will fly as many passenger miles as they did last year. The future is much less clear to me about how the business will turn out through absolutely no fault of the airlines themselves, end quote. There's been much speculation about when Buffett, aged 89, and his 96-year-old partner, Charlie Munger, will step down. While the appointments of Abel and Vice Chairman Ajit Jain are said to be part of the company's planning for an eventual transition in leadership, changes at the top don't appear to be coming anytime soon. Quote, I want to assure you, Charlie at 96 is really in fine shape, Buffett said in explaining why Munger wasn't in his typical spot by his side. It just didn't seem like a good idea to have him make the trip, end quote. But Munger is utilizing Zoom to hold meetings daily. Quote, he'll be back next year, Buffett said, end quote. Now let's turn to the opinion section from today's Des Moines Register. We begin with a column by Governor Kim Reynolds. We're opening the state by partnering with Iowans. If there is one thing that COVID-19 has shown us, it's the little things that we likely took for granted that made our lives seem normal. Taking the family out for dinner, having the grandkids over for a sleepover, or just seeing them off to school, getting your hair cut or colored, going to church on Sunday, or being able to head to work in the morning. Whether by telephone or text message or Zoom meeting, how many times in the last month have you heard someone say, quote, I can't wait for life to get back to normal, end quote. Last week, we took a step forward to normal. And while so much has changed in a short period of time because of COVID-19, Iowans will get through this together. One of the greatest scientists, Marie Curie, once said, quote, Nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. Now is the time to understand more so we may fear less, end quote. In just a couple of months, we've learned a lot about how this disease is spread, what we can do to slow that spread, and the responsibility each and every one of us has to be part of that solution. As a state, we took necessary, albeit difficult, steps to slow the spread of COVID-19 while simultaneously mobilizing a major statewide response effort that has included using the National Guard to supply Iowa hospitals with personal protective equipment, known as PPE, ramping up large-scale testing through Test Iowa, and sending so-called strike teams of public health professionals into outbreaks at nursing homes and manufacturing facilities. The reality is that we can't stop the virus. It will remain in our communities until a vaccine is available. We must learn to live with that without letting it govern our lives. Last week, we took a significant step forward to reopening the state and our economy. While it wouldn't be responsible to open everything, everywhere, right away, we will continue to make decisions in accordance with data and our public health experts. We're taking a county-by-county county approach, gradually reopening those areas less impacted by COVID-19. As testing expands, we will have the ability to better target and prevent future outbreaks. Our ability to keep reopening the state, however, relies on all of you. We need Iowans to be diligent in social distancing and using all that we've learned over the past couple of months to continue to slow the spread of COVID-19. From businesses putting in place new protocols to protect workers and shoppers to families limiting their shopping trips and wearing masks, we all have a responsibility to do our part, and I'm asking for your help. COVID-19 isn't over, and we don't know exactly when we can truly say life is back to normal. But if we all continue doing our part, staying serious about social distancing, and working to protect the most vulnerable Iowans, I'm confident we'll be able to continue reopening Iowa in a safe and responsible way. Again, this column was written by Governor Kim Reynolds, who is the 43rd governor of Iowa. 
and the Register's editorial today is titled, Reopen Iowa? Though the governor is understandably seeking to get the economy moving, continued increases in COVID-19 cases, outbreaks, and deaths should not be ignored, and neither should the Iowa Medical Society. Governor Kim Reynolds deserves credit for how she's led Iowa during the COVID-19 pandemic. In her daily news conferences, she is thoughtful, compassionate, and measured, particularly compared to some other Republican governors. She moved swiftly in March to protect state employees, close numerous businesses, limit gatherings, and halt elective medical procedures. After a stunning absence of federal leadership, Reynolds launched a program to increase testing for the virus. While we want to see more transparency from her administration and comprehensive answers to reporters' questions, Reynolds has consistently conveyed that the health and safety of Iowans is her top priority. Then came Monday. That news conference was difficult to get one's mind around. On the heels of announcing 349 new confirmed cases of COVID-19 and nine additional deaths, she detailed an executive order allowing some businesses in 77 Iowa counties to reopen May 1st. Restaurants, fitness centers, libraries, and retail stores in those counties can operate at half capacity and must abide by a handful of restrictions. Malls can open if they close play areas, common seating areas, and food courts. On Tuesday, she announced the Iowa Department of Inspections and Appeals would provide guidelines to opening restaurants. That guidance includes a few requirements, including limiting the size of groups and keeping six feet of distance between tables. The agency offers additional recommendations, not requirements, including that staff should wear masks and disinfect surfaces between each customer. Maybe a waiter will wear a bandana over his face. Maybe hand sanitizer will be available to customers. Maybe employees will be screened daily for illness. Maybe not. Reynolds also lifted restrictions on religious gatherings statewide. It's hard to understand giving places of worship across the state an okay to welcome congregants when the peak of infection in Iowa could still be weeks away. It's difficult to share her excitement about opening restaurants amid numerous outbreaks at senior living facilities. The governor argues the counties allowed to partially reopen have no confirmed novel coronavirus activity or have seen a downward trend in positive cases. Yet that could be due to a lack of testing. It could be the result of closures that kept the virus from circulating. And it may not be the case tomorrow or next week, particularly if businesses reopen. Quote, a sudden influx in social interaction is all but certain to cause a spike in new COVID-19 patients and potentially overwhelm our health care system, read a statement from the Iowa Medical Society. The state's largest professional organization representing physicians said Iowans should continue remaining largely at home and practicing physical distancing. Businesses should con strongly consider listening to the doctors. Regardless of what the governor is allowing, Opening is a choice, not a mandate. After Governor, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp reopened the state in mid-April, a group of about 50 restaurant owners in Atlanta and Savannah issued a statement saying they would keep their more than 120 restaurant dining rooms closed. A movie theater owner basically said, thanks, but no thanks. Iowa businesses can do the same. They may not want to risk contributing to the spread of the virus or to force employees to choose between their health and losing their unemployment benefits if they're afraid to report to work. They may worry about the backlash from customers who see opening as irresponsible at this time. A restaurant with a recently thriving drive-through or delivery business has less incentive to invite customers inside. Churches can also choose not to hold in-person services. Some faith leaders immediately said they had no intention of doing so. Each of the 3.16 million Iowans will have their own comfort level for exposure to others, which may change daily. People who are older or have health conditions should avoid close contact with others, no matter what reopens, as Reynolds advised. Many other Iowans should consider doing the same. Some of us cannot fathom the idea of se stepping foot inside a mall or gym right now. We have adopted a quarantine-till-vaccine philosophy that may last for months. Yet others are champing at the bit to get out. They don't like shopping online for shoes they want to eat in a restaurant. We encourage them to listen to the Iowa Medical Society for now, too.
And again, this was a, an editorial from the Des Moines Register. And in the letters to the editor in the Register today, we have a letter from Matthew Yoder of North Liberty titled, Long-Term Mental Health at Risk. COVID-19's impact will linger long after quarantine. While children return to school and businesses reopen, the stress and fear will not soon be forgotten. Now, more than ever, Iowa needs policies to plan for the mental well-being of our children whose future health outcomes will be determined, as research has shown, by their mental health now. Iowa's children greatly need effective, affordable, accessible mental health care. Suicide was the second and third leading cause of death in 2017 for Iowans ages 15 to 34 and 10 to 14, respectively. Of children ages 3 to 17 who needed mental health treatment in 2016, only 63% received it via the Iowa Department of Public Health. Children of color or from low-income households are more likely to have symptoms of mental illness. Governor Kim Reynolds proposed the Invest in Iowa Act in 2020, which would increase sales tax and cut income tax to fund the new children's mental health system. However, more regressive sales taxes would only burden lower-income families, the very demographic most in need of mental health care. As we move forward from this crisis, we must push for equitably, sustainably funded mental health care to ensure the long-term well-being of all our children. Signed, Matthew Yoder of North Liberty. And Jeff Dornenball of Des Moines writes, Everyone should be tested. Why has the state of Iowa failed to test anyone who wants to be tested or to provide the antibody testing for the coronavirus? It is my understanding that there have been several people who have had the virus and shown few or no symptoms at all, along with those who have had the virus but thought it was the flu. There will continue to be people who have the virus and show no symptoms who are walking around spreading it unknowingly. I, for one, would like to know if I've had the virus. Why must we wait until we are showing any symptoms? By then, it could be too late. Signed, Jeff Dornenball of Des Moines. David Johnson of West Branch writes, Class is feasible, but only under transformed circumstances. While all of us would love to resume face-to-face -face classes in the fall at the three Regents institutions, the reality of our situation is making that highly unlikely. Let us assume you resume face-to-face -face classes using the six-feet social distancing rule. That means classrooms can hold a lot fewer people. How much less? Suppose you have a lecture auditorium with an area of 8,733 783 square feet, which has a maximum seating capacity of 760 students under normal conditions. Implementing a social distancing rule would reduce the allowable number of students to 311 students. For a more standard sized classroom of 488 square feet that normally has a maximum capacity of 32 students, social distancing reduces that down to 17 students. Size limitations effectively reduce student capacity by more than half. Assuming the universities are okay with that, they then would have to tackle maintaining the social distancing practice during the passing of classes. How many students can safely walk down a hallway and use the same exits to leave the building? Is each classroom to be disinfected between classes? Now let us move on to dorm life. Social distancing practice dictates that no student could be sharing a dorm room. Are universities expected to run these facilities at a financial loss? How long is that sustainable? Will each student be expected to use communal showers, or will they each get their own? In a time when political pressures seem to be fighting against science and cold, hard facts, it is incumbent upon our institutions of higher learning to stay level-headed. In absence of widespread testing and immunization, it is simply irresponsible for the Board of Regents, the governor, or university presidents to pretend that school in the fall will go back to a face-to-face learning environment. It is better to simply make the decision now about continuing with an online curriculum until it is safe for everyone. To ignore what the scientists and doctors are saying about this virus requires that universities ignore their own mission statements. Signed, David Johnson of West Branch. Lauren Holst of Cedar Falls writes, Don't abandon our values or our concern for one another. 
No, Governor Kim Reynolds, Iowa's COVID-19 count is not going up because of increased testing. It has gone up due in great part to the lax oversight of Tyson meatpacking plants allowed by you, Senator Chuck Grassley, Senator Joni Ernst, Representative Steve King, and President Donald Trump. Let's not act surprised that Tyson and other meatpacking plants have created an environment that has sickened their employees with COVID-19 and has led to devastated families and communities here in Iowa. You stood by while the U.S. Department of Agriculture loosened regulations and enforcement at Trump's direction in the fall of 2019. This action dangerously increased how fast the production lines could be run, forcing workers to stand in direct proximity to one another, and decreased oversight and safety enforcement. You knew people would be working in dire conditions. When COVID-19 reached our shores, you already knew there would be no escape from exposure by the employees. Yet you did little, if anything, in advance of the crisis at the packing plants to enforce a slowdown of production, increase social distancing, or enhance safety when you had weeks and weeks to proactively take action. We are reaping the tragic harvest of the de deregulation that you insisted would be for our benefit. Now Donald Trump is requiring these employees to return to work with no assurance of improved working conditions, while Reynolds states she will return, revoke their unemployment if they refuse to return, rather than risk their lives. These are not Iowa values, American values, or religious values. Whom exactly are you serving? Signed, Lauren Holst of Cedar Falls. And Linda Luring of Lake City writes, where is the outrage over mistreatment of meat workers? While this is a difficult time for all Iowans, I find myself enraged with our collective so-called Iowa nice mentality. We sit back and blame the employees of the meatpacking industry for, quote, endangering the country with a meat shortage. We blame these workers who have had little or no protection for the financial disruption of the industry. What hypocrites we are! We express outrage that a million pigs may be euthanized, yet we show little concern for the men and women of color who work in these plants with little regard for their health and well-being. Their lives are in danger because of COVID-19. Data is clear that people of color are being affected disproportionately by this pandemic. These employees are classified essential workers and forced to work with little or no PPE. Why is that? Why is it? that we care more about eating meat and protecting big industry than we care about protecting human life. Every Iowa church leader should be outraged and, quote, shouting from the highest, end quote, to protect lives. Every Bible-thumping Iowa Christian should be marching in the streets to stop the human carnage. This lack of human respect is immoral. Signed, Linda Luring of Lake City. Now let's turn to the opinion section of USA Today. We begin with a column by Dr. Mark Siegel, titled, titled Coronavirus Recovery Hospital, Ravaged Bodies, Fearful Patients, Unpredictable Fates. Last weekend on the COVID-19 wards at NYU Langone Orthopedic Hospital, it was the new business as usual, namely helping patients wean off oxygen treating their anxiety and blood clots in their legs, and overcoming overall f fatigue and deconditioning. I participated and learned a lot about the twists and turns of recovery. The virus and its aftermath can ravage the body, badly damaging the lungs, heart, kidneys, and brain. Rehabilitation can be difficult, not to mention the problems of when and where to send the patients when they are medically ready to leave. Are two negative tests for COVID-19 sufficient before someone can go back to a household with an elderly parent or immunocompromised spouse? Where should a homeless patient go? Treating this disease is a long, slow process that doesn't end at the hospital door. At the heart of the battle against the virus in New York City is NYU Langone Health. Its orthopedic hospital takes COVID transfers from Tisch Hospital and the Kimmel Pavilion, NYU Winthrop and NYU Brooklyn while at the same time, according to the Chair of Orthopedic Surgery, Dr. Joseph Zuckerman, it has accepted transfers for orthopedic emergencies from Bellevue, Tisch, and other hospitals that are beset by COVID patients. Langhorne Orthopedic Hospital itself has four COVID wards filled with patients in various stages of recovery. The hospital has temporarily pivoted and changed its overall purpose to perform as a transition hospital for COVID-19 patients. 
According to nurse practitioner A.B. Brody, just coming off an overnight shift, there is an unsettling amount of unpredictability to the virus. He described to me the plight of a 93-year-old woman who had multiple medical problems and was turning blue with very low oxygen levels in the middle of the night. They turned her over, proning, and she stabilized. The team gave her extra oxygen, which she responded to, and within four days, she turned around and went home. Brody added that there are other patients, including some younger ones, who have not done nearly as well, and some have died. Dr. James Slover, in charge of the surgical service at the hospital, talked to me about how the teams came together, sharing skills, a hospitalist and nurse practitioners and physical assist physician's assistants working together with orthopedists who usually inhabited these halls. Slover indicated that they were all learning from each other, that a surgical nurse practitioner with expertise in personal protective equipment quickly shared this information while at the same time learning standard medical practices from his or her medical cohorts. I joined group rounds, experiencing and participating in the congeniality and effective exchange of information. There was no ranking or pyramid, just everyone pitching in, professionals doing their new jobs. The skills of the two critical care specialists I met with were clearly valued, especially when it came to the issues of low oxygen and blood clots. They readily lent their expertise to others on the team. Michelle Manesis, manager of advanced practice providers at the hospital but now managing COVID medicine, talked to me about the challenges of treating both mental as well as physical disabilities as COVID patients recover. The anxiety that stems from this illness, the isolation and the fear compounds pre-existing psychiatric conditions and makes adjustment and placement that much harder. Recovery from COVID-19 is a long game. It requires not just retooling, but constant commitment and devotion. As I walked through the wards clothed in PPE, I couldn't get out of my head the image of Dr. Adam Karp, a highly regarded longtime geriatrician, clearly in a high-risk group because of his weight, and being over 60 years old, carefully donning PPE to enter the room of a recovering COVID patient, bringing good cheer while performing an important decanalization procedure, removing the breathing tube from the patient's trachea, which demonstrated that the patient was on the road to recovery. Dr. Karp was wearing a kippah, and I didn't have to ask him to know that he was on the wards to do God's work. He and everyone else there appeared unafraid and performed their assignments at a high level. This jewel of a hospital will not be defeated by this powerful virus. This column was written by Dr. Mark Siegel, a member of USA Today's Board of Contributors and a Fox News medical correspondent, who is also a clinical professor of medicine and medical director of Dr. Radio at NYU Langone Medical Center. And the USA Today opinion section also includes an opinion written by Mitch Album of the Detroit Free Press titled, We Fear Economic Ruin and We're Ready to Move On, But the Coronavirus Is Not. We are facing a new silent enemy, one that could take us down quickly. It is not COVID-19, it is our patients. Americans are not a patient people. Our news cycle is 24 hours, a big story, 48 hours. We get bored with long reads. We're making movies in 10 minute increments. Our president communicates in tweets. We want things fast, now and over. So last week, as the weather turned sunny and the calendar turned to May, and reports began to spread of other states opening up, you could almost feel the collective zeitgeist. That's enough already. Six weeks? We're done with this. The problem is, coronavirus is not done with us. It doesn't get bored. It doesn't follow our timetable. It will hang around as undeterred as a shadow. You go inside, you think it's gone. You come out, it's waiting. Quote, you're making a big mistake. It's going to cost lives, end quote. That's the message Dr. Erwin Redliner, a disaster preparedness specialist at Columbia University, told the media last week. He sent a report to political leaders across the country, including governors who are opening their states right now. It's going to cost lives. Anyone who is paying attention knows that. My fear is, given our national impatience, at some point we start accepting that fact. In which case, heaven help the people we are willing to sacrifice. Let's be real about our levels of patience. There are those who have none, who were fed up with the very talk of a pandemic and didn't believe it was true. These include so-called experts, media icons, and, depending on your take, President Donald Trump. 
Then came those with no patience for a lockdown, followed by those who thought a few weeks was enough and then a month. More and more, there are those who feel it's time. We've done our part. How much else can be asked of us, even though Michigan's stay-in-place order is only on its 41st day? This is driven mostly by one thing, economics. We may be bored, we may be lonely, we may be weary of homeschooling our kids, but shame on us if we can't do those things for six whole weeks without acting like the world is ending. There are countries on this planet right now enduring wars and starvation that have lasted years. Genocide, fear of being killed without reason, poverty that leaves people scrounging to feed their babies every day. Should we really whine about not being able to go to the bar? No, the single legitimate test of our patience is how long an economy can be shut down and what will remain of it when it opens. No one knows, by the way. Quote, it's like flying a plane and then suddenly you kill the engines, Donald Boudreau, a noted American economist and professor, told me last week. Quote, then you try and start them up again. It isn't that simple. There's a rhythm to the economy. We don't know what will happen. There's no precedent for this, end quote. But there is fear. Fear that businesses will be gone. Fear that another month of bills without income will sink us. Fear that temporary job losses will be permanent. Fear that, to be blunt, we will have to suffer. This is legitimate, serious stuff. And a fear that will surely try our patience. But so is the fear of death. So is the fear of losing a parent while only being able to speak to them over a phone. So is the fear of unknowingly contracting the virus coming home and passing it to your loved ones, particularly older or at-risk loved ones. It is this fear that has plenty of businesses staying closed, even in states like Georgia, which rushed to open back up. Quote, we agree that it's in the best interest of our employees, our guests, our community, and our industry to keep our dining rooms closed at this time, read an ad in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, run by more than 120 restaurants in that city. They have their freedom. For now, they're saying no thanks. In that regard, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who has taken a lot of heat, has actually done Michiganders a favor with this longer lockdown. She has saved us from the tough and potentially terrifying question, do I risk my health or my job? Remember, once businesses reopen, they will call employees back, and those employees, in most cases, must return to work or give up any benefits they've been collecting. No more unemployment checks with the $600 per week sweetener that has some people making more than they earned working. That goes bye-bye. And even if you don't trust the precautions your workplace is taking against the virus, you can't stay home and keep collecting money. It's work or go payless. Sure, there are plenty who are ready to make that jump. Their patience with COVID-19 and any fear of its consequences pale in comparison to their concern about halting the economic machine. But, a study, but study a place that had that philosophy from the start, Sweden. The government there chose early on not to shut its economy, opting instead for a herd immunity. It left businesses and even restaurants open, issuing some guidelines relying on people to police themselves. The result? Currently, Sweden has a higher death rate from COVID-19 than the United States, and Sweden's total deaths are more than 10 times those of Norway, its immediate neighbor. Yet many in Sweden consider this a success. Quote, at least 50% of our death toll is within elderly homes, Anders Tegnell, the chief state epidemiologist at Sweden's public health agency, told BBC Radio recently, adding, quote, we have a hard time to understand how a lockdown would help stop the introduction of disease, end quote. Economics, death, impatience, compassion. That's the cage match we find ourselves in now. And that's it for our second hour of the Register on Iris. We're so glad to have you listening. I'm your reader, Paula Carezzi. Coming up next, obituaries from the Des Moines Register. <laughs> 